Hi, Cherise here with a special announcement. You can now enjoy select episodes of Detailed in video form. That's right. Detailed is now available on RCAT's YouTube channel. Now, you may be thinking, I already listened to the podcast. No need to watch it on YouTube. Well, trust me, if you don't want to miss out, even if you're an avid listener of the podcast, the video format is a completely different experience. Not only is it like hanging out with us, but you also get to hear parts of the conversation that were left on the cutting room floor. You can also see the photos, drawings, and video as we discuss the incredible projects that are featured. Come join us on YouTube. Follow the link in our show notes, and let's get into the details. This is an original podcast by RCAT. Try the number one most used website for finding building product information and save time and money. No registration is required with RCAT, so try it today and get ahead on your next project. Visit RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot com. Visit RCAT.com forward slash podcast to see photos, details, and more related project and product information that we discussed today. This is Detailed, an original podcast by RCAT. I am your host, Sharice Lakeside, Senior Specification Writer at RDH Building Science and fondly known as the CSI Kraken. We will speak with professionals who share their insights into the most complex, interesting, and odd building conditions and the ingenuity it took to make it work. Join me as I pull back the curtain on the building industry and uncover the lessons learned. You'll gain valuable knowledge to help you better navigate your next project. Welcome to Detailed. Today, I am pleased to welcome back Jeff Dreyfus, Principal, and welcome for the first time Whitney Hudson, first time means that there's an anticipation you're coming back. Project architect from Bushman Dreyfus Architects in Charlottesville, Virginia. Jeff is a founding principal and has been involved in a number of civic, nonprofit, and mixed use projects since the firm was started 30 years ago. His work on 600 West Main Street started with site analysis, then leading the successful application for a special use permit for increased density shepherding the project through the design review process of the local board of architectural review and on through project completion. The success of the project has led to two more mixed-use projects for the same client, one of which is about to begin construction, the other is in the early stages of design. Whitney is a senior project architect in her eighth year at Bushman Dreyfus. She has over 20 years of experience and came to BDA after working in Boston on several award-winning cultural and educational projects. She worked side-by-side with Jeff as the project architect both for the 600 West Main Street building and its companion project next door. The project we are going to chat about, can you guess, today is 600 West Main Street. 600 is an urban mixed-use project which helps connect two parts of the city, revitalizes two historic structures, and contributes to the artistic energy of the area. The new building has 53 apartments, an art gallery, lobby, courtyard, underground parking, and retail space. The renovated historic buildings house a locally famous diner and a wine shop with offices and apartments above. 
The owners, a married team of developer and artist, envisioned a forward-thinking urban apartment building for downtown Charlottesville. The artist owner says that 600 is where rock and roll goes to kick back. I already want to visit this building. 600 puts its residents in the heart of the city with the historic pedestrian mall and the University of Virginia within walking distance. In the past, the middle section of Main Street has felt more like a divider than a connector, but this is changing with new development and revitalization. The immediate site is as complex and varied as the street. Bounded by the two historic structures in West Main Street to the north, the project site is bordered by railroad tracks to the south, a store to the east, and an auto repair shop to the west. Each side is addressed by the design, whether by entry portals connecting the street fronts, industrial balconies along the tracks, or the artist's mural facing the auto shop parking lot. 600 consists of steel and concrete structure for the parking and ground floor levels and wood frame construction above. Check out the RCAP page for this episode to read even more about this project. So let's start with what is the story behind this project? The history, the goals, the aspirations, how did this come to be? Well, the developer that bought the property was already a client of ours, husband and wife team that were determined to move to Charlottesville from Manhattan. They had approached us about potentially building a new house for them. They had bought land here. It had a, an existing cottage on it. So what we did was we renovated the cottage for them so that they could live in it. And then we would begin designing their new home. And they thought, well, we're not 100% certain that we want to move down here full time. The cottage works for us. But uh, the husband whose career was in development decided at that time that he was going to start his own development firm. He recognized that Charlottesville was a potential market for mixed-use projects, which is what his experience was. And together, they started looking around at the city, realizing that it's, it's rich culturally, um, it's a fairly wealthy community, and that there was a dearth of, I'll call it upscale rental units. So they identified a parcel, and we had already been working together on this previous project. And the client called and said, do you guys do apartments? Do you do mixed use? And while we don't have a whole lot of experience with it, the obvious answer to that was, yes, we do. (laughs) We studied the site, and once it was clear that, that it was a viable concept, at least, we moved forward with the owners to develop and build the project. The site itself was complicated. The parcel contained, at the time and still does, two contributing structures to the downtown historic district. So that means that they, in order to do anything to them, you have to get approval from the local Board of Architectural Review. The zoning was going to allow a six-story building And these buildings are small, two-story, originally residential buildings. So could easily be dwarfed by the project. So so that was a conundrum to begin with. And West Main Street in that zone was a little bit of a DMZ. It was not well-developed. 
There were many missing teeth along the street, open vacant lots or buildings set back, so not feeling very urban. So one of the goals of the entire design team was that we contribute to the urbanism of Charlottesville with a forward-looking building. And forward-looking was an important element of the brief because Charlottesville, as many people know, is filled with a lot of red brick and white columns and odes to Thomas Jefferson. Um, right. <laughs> and none of us wanted to build that. And so that's what we set off to do. But yet I'm imagining that you still had to come up with a design that would be urban but still fit within the historic nature of the buildings around it. Well, we decided that the better thing to do would be to contrast with the more historic buildings on the property and nearby. Interesting. The two original structures are in one corner of the site along the street, and the new structure wraps as an L around those two structures with a courtyard between. It steps back and defers to those structures that are right on the street. And uh, material-wise, color-wise, they're distinctly different from the new building. And I think that, personally, I believe that it's, it's more of a, a frame for the, original, the, the older structures than it is detracting from them. We really felt like, you know, rather than doing something that looked like a gigantic version of those little houses, we did something that was different and complementary and created ways to connect to it and still give it some space behind. In the front, working back and forth with the Board of Architecture Review, making the building get shorter as it approached the street, looking at patterns on the facade, how the windows work and the different um, metal materials and cladding as more of a backdrop to the shapes of the houses versus something that is a solid surface with punched openings in a grid or something. Really looked at making it more of a surface, more of a pattern backdrop. But yeah, the, the contrast was important, not replicating what was there, really kind of highlighting those things, something different and making them special. I think before West Main Street in that area doesn't feel very walkable. People definitely went to the diner and to the, to the mini mart there, but now I think we kind of brought them up to a walkable level. Everything is um, finished and painted and renovated so that those buildings are updated and nice and will last a lot longer. And I think, you know, when you're starting from the street, we spent a lot of time on creating this surface, making it so that, you know, the only part of the new building that comes to the road is a very narrow area. The site's almost split into three, the two houses and then part of the new building. And as that part approaches the road, we didn't want the whole thing to look like it was a gigantic garage door. So we spent a lot of time trying to make the uh, opening into the garage part of the facade. So there's um, perforated metal panels that slide down in front of the garage doors. There's these giant gates that open, but when it's closed, it looks part of the rest of the building. And that pattern kind of slides down the facade and continues over that. It also slides up and creates railings. So there's perforated metal railings on the balconies that kind of approach the street, those terraces out there in front that help to create closer scale to the existing buildings in the front of the site. So a lot of the front of the building there is, um, is metal, but different textures with the metal to create that pattern that I mentioned. Um, the other thing that's really important 
we felt about the whole front facade, and so I'm including the historic houses in this idea of facade for the street. There's these um, three, we call them Corten, um, weathering steel, so rusting steel portals on the street. One surrounds the entrance to the little retail shop in the new, the new building. And then there's another one that uh, highlights the entrance between the diner building and the new building, highlights the residential entrance. And then there's one that's between the two uh, historic buildings. And these are giant sort of rectilinear plates of uh, rusting weathering steel that create physical connection between these structures, but also gateways into it. And those were something that were, was important to us to connect everything together and kind of give even the older elements the similar pieces and language to the structure. The space between the two historic buildings with this gate I mentioned, um, the surface of the gate itself is perforated metal. So that's taken from the facade of the building and those materials exist between the two historic houses. And when you enter that, you walk between the two historic houses back into a very lovely and lush um, courtyard space that looks into the lobby of the building and also um, through very large um, five panel sliding glass doors into a gallery space that would be for um, rotating exhibits and, and residents to gather and different functions. Um, they've had some events there. I'm, I'm looking at pictures actually on one of my screens right now and out in that courtyard is that plants growing up the walls by the fire pit? Mm-hmm. Yes. Nice. It's beautiful the way that the building is. It's such a different, you know, it is very urban. And it does contrast, but it also fits very well. The courtyard itself is a critical element to the success of the project. And that is very intimate. It's small. It's a tall, narrow space. But it allows the three structures to actually have a conversation. And while one side of that courtyard is the new building and six stories tall, the opposite side is two stories high. One of the other sides looks into the lobby of the building, the elevator lobby. The other side opens out to the views beyond, to the site actually that we are going to be building on next. But the courtyard allowed the three buildings to have a dialogue as opposed to it be an argument. Um, <laughs> they don't fight one another. And part of that too was one of the wonderful things about working with this client team. The wife is an artist and she actually, one of her college majors was color theory. So the colors of the two historic structures, each is a different color just for the description here. And the, the new building is really mostly grays with a, a bit of blue in it. And I believe that part of the success of the project is quite literally the selection of colors that allow the buildings to speak to one another, but to maintain their identity. It totally works in that courtyard. Courtyards tend to be oftentimes in newer buildings, in my opinion, rather cold, yeah, um, rather stark you know, very concrete in that courtyard with the trees and the plants going up the walls and the fire pit feels so much warmer just looking at it than I would typically see in a, a lot of newer buildings. My son lives in Boston in a brand new building and they have a rooftop, a whole rooftop deck entertainment space 
and it's it's cool to have it up there, but um, it's just not a lot of warmth going on up there. <laughs> There's not a lot of cozy at all. You know, you're sitting on top of a building in the middle of Boston. But no, I love that. That's beautiful. Um, how about the interior spaces? The lobby, the, not the lobby, the gallery rather, and the courtyard, the connection, and how those existing buildings actually make that space a lot, like you said, friendlier, warmer, cozier than it would have been if that was looking out onto another new structure, right? Those textured walls of the old brick that are newly painted and the windows that are there and that roughness of it and the, the historicness of it uh, is really nice, a nice touch to have in the gallery space as one of the walls of the gallery. The interiors are, I won't call them stark, they're spare for a reason. We It was a little bit more of an industrial feel that we were going for, concrete floors on the, on the ground floor. We say lobby. It's it's an elevator lobby. This is not a grand... Charlottesville is not a grand city, and this is not a grand apartment building. Um, it's actually very modest on the interior. So uh, residents walk in and they walk into the elevator lobby, but straight ahead is a small concierge desk, which is, it's a box and it contains the concierge desk and the post office boxes as well. So everybody interacts with it daily. It's clad in blackened steel. So it, it too is part of the more industrial aesthetic to go with the concrete floors and the metal panels on the exterior of the building. And then just off to the side of that is the gallery, which opens onto the courtyard. And the gallery can be separated from the rest of the space by a, a metal curtain that pushes aside. It's all a bit of a backdrop in this instance. The building, the exterior of the building is a backdrop for the historic structures on the interior, the building is intended to be a backdrop for the artwork because this was a part of the program that the artist component of our client team brought to it. And that is that you get to live with art so that the gallery, which is also sort of the communal meeting space for, or club room for residents, if they want to go down and, and have a party, they can do it there. They can go down there and work on their laptops. But the space of the gallery, as well as all of the corridors upstairs, are intended to be display spaces for artwork and artists that rotate. So the client bit off a lot more than she realized she could chew, though she, she succeeded at it. When the building opened, she had six floors of residential corridors that she needed to furnish with artwork, as well as the gallery. And so um, the building is, the, the materials are simple. The lighting is really very well thought through in the public spaces so that we have the opportunity to light artwork as it rotates in the building. I'm looking at um, one of the units and like I'm looking at it and I'm like, okay, if I was in Charlottesville, I would totally live here in the big windows. Yeah. Yeah. Looking out. I'm looking at the exterior pictures. All the units have those big windows? Yes. Every unit has large windows, and many of them have outdoor terraces. The views from this building in both directions are really pretty spectacular, and it was important. From our perspective, we as a firm, we're modernists at heart, working in Thomas Jefferson's playground, so... <laughs> 
we have to walk <laughs> that fine line. But we're aligned with our client who really wanted it to be about the views and not about the architecture per se inside the units. So the units are very clean and that's hard to do on a, a market rate apartment building. Um, the detailing is very simple and very clean. I'll tell you, it's really hard to get a contractor who is used to stamping out apartments one after the other to slow down and actually A, get what the detail is supposed to look like, and then B, actually execute it properly. That was probably one of our biggest struggles on the project. Um, it's even harder when it's a contractor who, or, or just a contractor base that says, but we've never done this before. The, the way we do it is this. We slap up trim. Well, we're not slapping up that trim. <laughs> Which means your work has to be really good because you can't cover it up with that. Exactly. That was a goal for all of us. And, and the client was unrelenting in demanding it. And we're glad that we did it. The building is fully occupied. In fact, the building was, was opened during COVID. We were terrified that it would not fill its capacity and they have a waiting list at this point. So tell me about some of the challenges on this project, both design and construction. You know, just give me a few examples of challenges you encountered throughout the process and how you dealt with them. I think the building shell was... It was a challenge for everybody. We were putting together materials in ways that they hadn't been put together before. Metal building panels are one thing, but we were combining them with stainless steel angles or aluminum angles on the exterior, this perforated screen system, stock windows, and how all of that came together and what you saw when you stood back was an interesting I guess it was a matrix of decisions. And then we had a large-scale mock-up done. And we learned so much about that lar- from that large-scale mock-up. I, I really, it's something that we, we do and I encourage everybody to do on any project that somehow brings mat- exterior materials together that you've never used before or that you've never combined that way before because you learn Lots and lots about the waterproofing details and what you see when you stand back. Oh, we didn't realize that the waterproofing membrane was going to be orange and it was going to be seen between the metal panels and the aluminum <laughs> angles. So we need to redirect on that. Um, and can you imagine had that building started going up with everything already decided um, and ordered and then we have to deal with the issue? So for our own education, bringing together materials that we knew could work, but had never combined them in that way, that that was a real challenge. One of the other challenges was how do we build next to these old buildings, these historic structures that had unreinforced basement walls that we couldn't really get to, to, to do anything about that without major cost. But we were digging a full basement for the parking garage underneath the new structure. And I've done projects in the past where we actually supported the historic structure and then excavated underneath it. And that was ungodly expensive. What we decided we were going to do was we would stay away. The courtyard between the two structures actually gives us the, the distance we needed from the original structure's 
to to not tamper with their basement retaining walls. Um, the minute we got close to those, we were going to have problems. And so what you don't see below the courtyard is that it actually, it's elevated above the earthwork between the original buildings and the new building, and that surrounding the original buildings is a whole retaining wall protecting its basement from any lateral forces from the compacted earth that, that sits between those structures. So instead of tampering with or inside the original structures, we actually built a new retaining wall just off of the existing basement walls to just not deal with it. And it worked well. One thing I was thinking of is how tight the site is. So if you look at it from a plan view, a site plan view, you got West Main Street in front, pretty busy street. You got these two historic houses. Our building touches the street approximately one third of the width of the site only. On the, <laughs> I'm thinking of it as left because I'm imagining looking down on it with West Main Street at the bottom. Uh, we have the ABC store. And then um, on the right is University Tire, which is a structure pushed back from the road and the parking lot. We gave our building about a foot of space on either side there. The front, it comes right up to where we were allowed to build a little bit back from the faces of the historic houses, but touching the Blue Moon Diner. And then on the back, we've got a railroad track. So there's really no back to the building. I mean, you think, oh, the railroad track is the back, but there's no access to that side once the building is built. And so it's a little bit pedestrian to think about, but, um, you know, where do you put the back of house stuff? Where does the transformer go? And that was a big challenge for us, not wanting to have to carve out a big space somewhere on the site to put the transformer and looking at different rules about where that might go. And it needs to be totally open above. Uh, no building can go above it. So you can't hide it in a corner with the building built above it or anything like that. And so we ended up putting it in a vault underground in the driveway into the parking garage right in front. And so there's a big metal grate there that covers it up that can be removed. And if there needs to be work done, there are places to put bollards into the support structure for the grate so that people can still drive in and out of the garage on one side and uh, the transformer can be removed and repaired, et cetera, and still maintain access. And that was, that was a challenge to build that. It was a challenge to figure it out, um, designing the grate, designing the basement around having that there, the fire separation, the access control, all of that type of thing to get that to work, getting approval and buy-in from Dominion to put it in. And it ends up that we're going to be using that vault and uh, a slightly bigger transformer that still fits in that vault will be uh, used to power both that building and the one we're building next door now. That's a great solution. Um, how about construction, Whitney? Tell me about construction. There's always good stories during construction. You know, creating something that is simple is very difficult and very difficult to get built correctly. Uh, the cladding on the outside is really complicated. We wanted everything in the same plane. So the perforated panels on the railings, the metal cladding, the garage doors are all in the same plane. And, and the mock-up was, was helpful in that as well. Kind of keeping it simple. We didn't want it to step back and just have a railing plopped on top. We wanted to look like it was part of the facade. Stuff like that to make it look more interesting, but also simpler, um, was much harder to build. Um, the interiors 
apartments are pretty clean. All the doors are on the cabinets are flat slab, full overlay doors. It's it's a challenge to um, to find that at an affordable cost for an apartment building. Um, and I think I see this as an advantage um, that we hadn't really done a building like this before. We don't tend to specialize as a firm in one type of building. We don't do all elementary schools or all single family homes. We, we do a variety of things. And um, you think about everything fresh. We don't have any preconceived ideas of how something might be. And that's not necessarily the case for the contractor and the subcontractors because the, the people that you would get to build a multifamily building have done lots and lots of multifamily buildings. And so I think the challenge, even from the very beginning of design, working with the contractor was to get them to understand that this is the intention isn't for this to be like everything else that they've built. We suffered from that from the beginning, even in the schematic design pricing and moving forward. As much as we drew something, one of the estimators said, oh, well, I thought you wanted it to be hardy panel because that's cheaper. Well, no, that's not what we drew. We didn't draw a hardy panel. So why did, why did you even think about that without talking to us about it? It was, it was a struggle every step of the way to basically say, we meant what we drew, at least price it, and then we can have a conversation about it. But don't put words in our mouths. And we sort of discovered those assumptions all the way through construction even on their part. That one of the things that I found really valuable, especially um, on mixed-use multifamily work, everybody specifies a pre-construction meeting, but they don't always talk about all of the rules of the road for the project. Things like submittals and substitutions. Like my specs don't allow substitutions during construction, except um, in a couple of very specific circumstances, like say the product's been that I specified has been discontinued or the plant burned down and now it's going to be twice as expensive because I have to get it across the country or there's big cost benefit to the owner for an equivalent product. But there are all these things that if you kind of have all the hard conversations up front with your contractor and say, this is, this is how it's going to go down. And I think sometimes when you take just a, a very gentle, but hard line, right from the beginning, that helps a lot. Uh, so looking back on your process and your solutions for this project, each of you, what was your biggest lesson learned from this project? One thing we talked about when we had a big meeting before we started this new one with the same client and talked about what can we do better than the last time? How can we get it to go more smoothly? And one of my biggest lessons from that is... Um, to be more of a, um, to be less nice in the process. Um, starting out with the construction process and, you know, you want every, want everything to go smoothly and you don't want it to end in arguments at the end and finger pointing and you want it to go well. And I, and I do still want that to happen, but being much more careful in how we reviewed things like the mock-up and trying to be nice about things and letting things go and thinking, oh, well, they'll probably do it better when they do it again or something. And I think now I think I would just make sure to really just nitpick and point out everything. And But if they send a submittal in and it's not complete, send it back, don't review it and stuff like that. Because by the middle to the end, it was such so painful having to deal with some of these things um, 
that maybe we could have gotten ahead of by being um, bigger jerks at the beginning. I'm I'm a huge fan of catching more flies with honey than you do with vinegar. That said, uh, you know, my students will say, oh, this is happening with the contractor. And they've sent me 400 RFIs. And, you know, they're just frivolous RFIs asking questions because they don't want to go do their work. And I'm not bashing contractors. I've worked with some wonderful contractors. And I've worked with some that are going to just make it a challenge all the way through. But my first question back is, why didn't you put a stop to it the first time? Or why didn't you have that that pre-construction meeting that's not all about the project, the building itself, but all about the rules of the road? I really liken a construction project to raising children. We want to raise good human beings, right? We want to raise a good building. And in order to do that, you have to have clear boundaries that you're ready to enforce. That's what division one in your specifications are. Those are your boundaries, but we we on the architecture side, I think, have really bent to the threats of contractors. You're delaying the project or this is going to cost more money. They have signed a contract agreeing to these rules. And these rules are in their drawings and specs. And those are a part of the contract. So I, I think that you can still be polite. I had a contractor I thought was going to wrap his fingers around my neck once when I said, this is how it's going to go down before we even started in guy turned red. I thought he was going to lose it. The only thing that stopped him was the owner was sitting right there. The owner followed me out of that meeting to thank me for laying down the law with the contractor. We we have to we have to get our backbone back a little bit on the architecture side of things and working on our projects and keep everybody in their own pools playing the way they're supposed to play. That's my two cents, but this isn't about me. What about you, Jeff? What was your biggest lesson learned? It really truly was the same. And that is that we've all agreed to a contract and that contract has certain rules and we all need to live up to it. And we all want to be nice guys, but no, we can't do our work properly without you playing by the rules that we've all agreed to. So standing up to it, making that clear. And as you've said, Sharice, the first time it happens, we're not doing it until it's done right the first time. Submittals that come in, either not reviewed by the contractor or partial submittals, make our work really difficult. And we never agreed to review a, a spec sheet now and later we'll get the samples and later we'll get the other components. No, we want it all at once. We can evaluate it now. And, and that's what we should expect and that's what we should demand. It's too easy for us to say, well, okay, this time, no. But then we've we've let the kids get away with something once, and they're going to try to get away with it again. And they're going to be twice as bad the next time. Yep, exactly. <laughs> okay, so final question. My motto is total world domination. I want to make as much of an impact while I'm here as I can. What is your world domination statement? could be personal, could be professional, but what mark do you hope to leave on the world? working hard and being a good human while doing that and making a difference, whether it's in architecture or volunteer work that we might do and doing it with humanity. The architecture is one thing, but getting a, getting a building built is a process. And I want to come out of that process having become a better person because of the people I interacted with and maybe having made a difference in their lives to a good difference 
in their lives too. So that's my goal. I love that. I used to tell my kids, you know, I have one job and that is to create a productive, kind human being. My job is not to be your best friend. My job is not to do everything for you. My job is to make sure when I release you on this into this world at 18 or whenever that you are a person people like to know, um, that you make your own mark in the world. And I don't know that they always saw it while I was raising them, but they're pretty good humans now. So I'm pretty proud of that. How about you, Whitney? In terms of just general life and architecture, I think having people think that I stood up for what I thought and that I didn't compromise. And I know you have to sometimes, but maybe being careful about when you do and having a good reason to. <laughs> and not just like, you know, giving in, but taking a stand for stuff. Yeah, I think that, you know, there's compromise and then there's your values. There's all kinds of opportunities to compromise in life, but when you believe what you believe, I don't think anybody feels good when they stray from, you know, where their heart truly is because somebody else is pushing them to do that. And, you know, and we have a lot of that in this business. Well, Jeff Whitney, it is just a pleasure talking to both of you. I love hearing about your projects. Um, I'm sure we'll talk again in the future. Our cat hasn't fired me yet, so... I think they're sticking sticking with me for a while. But again, thank you for your time um, and all this great information. And I hope to talk to you both again soon. Thank you very much. Thanks, Cherise. It's been wonderful. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more, visit rcat.com forward slash podcast to see photos, details, and more related project and product information that we discussed today. While you're there, take a look around RCAT.com. For over 30 years, RCAT has been the resource for AEC professionals to find the right products for their project. Try RCAT and see how their tools can save you time and money and help you get ahead on your next project. Visit RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T.com. If you enjoyed the show, you can support us by subscribing, leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, and sharing this with your friends. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back to share more stories and lessons learned to help you navigate your next project.